It's Luke 16, 1 through 31. Parable of the dishonest manager. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from the management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in, very, in much. And one who is dishonest in, in a very little is, is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what in which is another's, who will give you what is your which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The law and the kingdom of God. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of the Lord. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Divorce, divorce and remarriage. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. The rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at, at the gate, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with, with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The, man had, the, the poor man died and was carried to the angels by Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you in a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Moses said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. 
And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes and tells them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know about you, but being able to spend time with family, being able to eat good food, and then having the beautiful snowstorm that makes Colorado so great just reminded me of all of the great things that God has blessed us with here. A couple years ago, I decided I wanted to do my annual tradition of going out archery bear hunting, but that year, I just had the grand idea that I wanted to go all by myself, which was probably the dumbest thing I have ever done. So the first day I got out there, it was just a beautiful, balmy mountain, 70 degrees. The birds were chirping. Everything to be going, seemed to be going smoothly. I got down to the spot. I wanted to set my tree stand up, got everything ready, sat up there, and sat up there, and sat up there. And any of you that have sat in a tree stand long enough, it can get boring pretty fast. So I got bored, and I decided I wanted to just go down and wander in the woods. I wanted to go see what I could see, see what I could find. And I looked over, and I saw my four-wheeler on the ridge. I was like, okay, that's the direction I'm going to go. I'm going to head that way. And by the time I'm done walking, I can just head straight up to it and head out of the woods. So as I'm walking and getting down and getting through all the thick brush and the thick trees, it started to downpour. It was like a torrential downpour rain. I don't know if you've experienced that in the mountains, but it can get bad really fast. And so as it's raining, I lost sight of where I was going, and I started paying more attention to the ground, and and I started going off track. I started trying to just follow the rocks and trying to find a way that I wouldn't fall as I'm going up this mountain. I went off course. I had to get my eyes back on the prize. I couldn't see where the four-wheeler was anymore. I just, I was lost. Had to get my eyes back on the prize, the prize of not dying in the mountains, right? I had to go find another cliff to climb up so I could look over the horizon and get another glimpse of where that ridge was that I needed to get to. Needless to say, I'm never going to go bear hunting alone again. That trip pretty much sealed the deal for me. But something I learned from that trip then and was reaffirmed with in this passage we get to study today is that I need to keep the right end in view. It's so easy to lose sight of the end. It's so easy to lose sight of the goal of that proverbial ridge out in the distance. I need to keep the right perspective of this life at the forefront. A right view of the end. So throughout this passage today, we're going to see several things emerge that will help remind us of this. But with the two main points that we're going to walk out of here with, and that is the end in view, then the view of the end. With the main takeaway for this morning, that we can live 
with the right end in view, because through Christ we have been given the right view of the end. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you so thankful and so grateful for all that you do and all that you provide for us, God. Thank you for this life that you've allowed us to have. Thank you, God, for um, all that you are doing in each of our lives. Lord God, as we walk through this passage today, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to see you more clearly, to see the truths that you would have us walk away with today. Lord, we are so thankful for you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't yet, go ahead and open up your Bible to Luke chapter 16, and we're going to be starting with the parable of the dishonest manager that you just heard a moment ago. Before we dive into this parable, there's just a couple things I want to remind us of and point out before we get into this. So if you were here last week when we talked through the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, there was something really important that helped bring the purpose of these parables to life, and that being that Jesus was talking directly to the Pharisees. He was pointing out to them the people they thought God was going after with the, the reality of who he was actually going after. So it's important that we have this point at the forefront because of the very first line that we see here in chapter 16. This very first line, he also said to the disciples. So this right here, it shows a shift from a conversation with the Pharisees while the disciples listened in to a conversation with the disciples while the Pharisees listened in which takes us into this really, really interesting parable. Because at first glance, this whole section might seem to be contradictory to everything Jesus has been teaching the disciples so far. Why in the world would he use an example of a dishonest manager? This is a man who cheated his master for the sake of personal security. It's a man that did whatever it took to secure his future. Why would Jesus say in this parable that the master commended him for this? It says he commended him for his shrewdness. So the problem with this is that in our Western mindset, reading through parables, we tend to associate characters being presented just from the different stories, the different parables that we have read and we've heard so many times before. Because most of the time, when a master is seen, it usually represents God. And then when we're talking about a servant or a manager, it's a visual of Israel or the people of God. So if we do that here, it immediately gets murky and seems completely entirely out of character for what Jesus is saying. So when we remove the idea of assigning characters here and see it, what for, see it for what it is, which is two men of the world having an interaction. This is two men of the world having an interaction, and it shifts what it looks like and what it's saying. So right here, you have a guy who messed up with his boss's accounts, and he got fired. And it says he shrewdly went to his boss's clients. So let's pause here real quick. 
what does the word shrewd even mean? So to best put this parable together, this is an essential piece to the puzzle. So according to the dictionary, it's the quality of being astute or sharp in practical matters or the ability to find and pursue the most advantageous course of action. I heard it explains once as a shrewd person being astute, perceptive, practical, and strategic. And they can perceive situations and respond with effective strategies. They can perceive situations and respond with effective strategies. So the problem with this word in the English language is that it usually has a negative connotation associated with it. So when we think about the word, we can potentially associate it with someone who's completely selfish, self-centered, only acting in their own interest. They're not thinking about others, just ensuring, ensuring that they themselves are cared for, that they get what they want by any means necessary. But in a worldly sense here, this is considered an admirable quality, especially when we're talking about money and investments and things like that. So the Greek word translated shrewd in 16.8 is phronomos. It's the Greek word phronomos, which means prudently wise. So we see this word in a couple different places in Scripture, including in Matthew 7.24, we see the man who built the house on the rock, a story and account that we all know so well, described as this phronomos. That's the word used, phronomos. In Matthew 16.10, Jesus commands... Each of us to be wise or phronomos as serpents, but innocent as doves. And in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, 1 through 13, the prepared virgins were said to be phronomos. Kind of changes the perspective a little bit, doesn't it? So now that we have more of a precise definition of this word, we continue on in our parable. So this manager gets fired. And then shrewdly, Fromenos, prudently, wisely, goes around to the master's clients, cutting their debt in half. And he does this hoping this would get him on their side. Having friends on the outside to help him out when he gets fired. So when faced with the end of his career, the manager gained favor with people, ensuring a future for himself. He had the end in view and responded with effective strategies to secure his future. So you might be saying, well, that's, that's all well and good, but this parable still seems super sketchy. The manager cheated his boss, and his boss is applauding him. Again, as I said before, we should look at this parable initially from the lens of two worldly men, the boss not saying, thanks for cheating me and lying, but acknowledging how smart it was for him to figure out a way to secure a path financially for the future. That he did whatever it took to push ahead because he had the end in view. It's almost like the boss was saying, aha, I see what you did there. That was, that was clever, good one. 
So when I was in the military, I started dating this really pretty girl named Jen. And I wanted to be around her all the time. Every second of every day, but being stationed in Cheyenne and her living in Denver, I had to come up with all kinds of different creative ways to see her. And sometimes my creative ways of seeing her were just to drive as fast as I could. I mean, that makes sense, right? One time, I decided I want to go see Jen. So I left Cheyenne, and as I'm going down all these different back roads and trying to find the most strategic way to get to her house, I decided, well, might as well do a cool 120, right? Just hit the gas and go as fast as I possibly could. The problem with this is that when you're going 120 down a back road and a cop sees you, it's not ideal. It is not the best situation you could be in. Because in that situation, as I'm driving past, as quickly as I could respond, that cop flipped around, turned his lights on, and pulled me over. So in this situation, I knew I had to perceive what was happening, and I had to respond with an effective strategy. The situation at hand was go to jail. And my effective strategy was really terrible, but it was effective. Now, before I share my shrewdness of my strategy, I'm going to say I am in no way condoning any of the following. I was a terrible heathen. And now that we have that covered, here was my strategy. So the cop is very angry with me. If, if you probably, I'm guessing you probably would have guessed that. He's yelling and screaming at me to get out of the car, telling me, turn my car off, throw the keys out the window, get out of the car. So I do what he says, but in my mind, I'm like, okay, what can I do? What can I do? How can I get out of this? And the first thing that pops in my head is I just start frantically trying to talk to the cop. I'm like, sir, sir, you don't understand. You don't get it. You don't understand. I need, I need to talk to you. So he comes up. I was like, well, listen, there's been an incident on base and, and I'm in the military, and I forgot my uniform at my girlfriend's house. And so I, I need to get there as quickly as I possibly can, because if I don't get there and get my uniform, then, then there's going to be problems, and I have to get to base as quickly as possible. And you know, the most interesting thing happened. That cop's face shifted, and he started to be concerned. He's like, oh, my goodness, are you serious? Re really? That happened? Oh, man, I'm so sorry. So he's like, son, you got to slow down, but you know, you do what you got to do, and God bless America and, and everything like that. So like the boss of the manager, no one that hears that story condones my dirty sinning. But do come back with, well, that was, that was clever, though. I mean, yeah, I, I see what you did there. You somehow got out of going to jail doing 120. Okay. See, I took effective strategies to secure my future. I seized the opportunity. Again, not condoning. But I had the end in view of not spending a large amount of time in jail with large fines. Like the manager myself, there was a view of the end in mind, seizing the opportunities to ensure it. So with the interaction between these two men on display, Jesus continues to the points of why he said what he's saying. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth 
so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So Jesus hits home a couple of big ideas here that are going to inform the rest of this section of Scripture, helping get down to the heart of what he's trying to say. The first is that the world is good at being shrewd. The world sees the end game of what they want, and they'll seize any opportunity available to secure that. They'll take the most advantageous, advantageous course of action to achieve the end that they desire. Someone said the manager's goal was to provide for his future, and he accomplished that, however dishonestly. He was preparing for the time when a paying job for him would be a thing of the past. Jesus was also saying that the people of this world know how to get what they need. They know what they want and how to act decisively to accomplish their earthly goals. They know how to prepare for their future, and they will go to great lengths to preserve their financial security using their resources and energy. The second point Jesus makes is the contrast between these worldly men and the disciples or believers, saying that the sons of light tend to be less good at this regarding the spiritual and eternal end game than the world is at seeing the view of the end they want to secure their future. Are we as believers, the sons and daughters of light, going as hard as the world is securing their future? But for us, it's for the most important thing. It's for the gospel going out, people around us hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, the end game in view that we want to seize every opportunity we have to honor and glorify our king by using our talents and resources available to us. Because we have a proper view of the end in mind. Because we have a proper view, we want that to happen. The world wants to secure a future in the here and now. But we are called to something much more significant. Securing the future with the eternal perspective. Using what we've been given, or the unrighteous wealth as it's talking about here, literally the money we have here and now, the resources we have to perceive situations and respond with effective strategies with the proper end of the view, or view of the end in mind. People are passing away around us all the time. Don't we want each of those people to know who Jesus Christ is? We want each person that doesn't know Christ to come to a true understanding of him because we know that without him, there is no future except for pain and suffering. When we start seeing things this way, it changes the way we view the world around us. Church, instead of looking at the ground, we start looking towards the ridge seeing that God has placed each of us in different places with different walks of life so we can think through strategically using what we have to pursue the lost world around us. 
Maybe you know a non-believer that loves playing volleyball, and you just so happen to have access to a court. Use your time, use your resources to build relationships and point to Christ with the end in view, where you live, learn, work, and play. Don't just passively go about your day staring at the ground. Because when you do, you'll get off course, losing sight of what it is we are here to do. Be shrewd. Take advantage of what's happening around you. Maybe you're in a mom's group and you find out that, that someone you know, one of your friends needs diapers. Use what you have to go after them. Secure a future with an eternal perspective in mind. Think about the places you are in and how you can shrewdly use what God has given you to go after the lost world with as much vigor as the world does securing its own future. Luke 12, 32 through 34. Let's love this verse. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So this first section has been so convicting to me as I realize that I have been so lacking with truly having the end game in view as I walk through this life. Even as a pastor, where my job is supposed to be the end being in view, I can so easily get off course, staring at the ground, going off track. Even just this short section has been an incredible reminder to start really thinking through what I have and where I am. And how I can actively look for ways to point people around me to the cross with what I have. Are you looking at the ground? Are you looking up with the end in view? Jesus continues in the next section, unpacking this idea further in, 10, 13, in verses 10 through 13, saying, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest, dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in, which, in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus ends the first parable by adding another element to the view of the end, taking a little bit more street level here, pointing specifically to the resource of money God's given us. This is Jesus reminding them then and us now that what we have been given is not ours. Everything we have has been given to us. We're stewards of these things. We are managers of what we have been given. If we can't correctly handle these things, how in the world will we be able to manage the true riches? If we don't have a proper view of the end in mind, we can tend to lose sight of what we are here for, where our money comes from, and instead of using it 
when and where we can for him and his glory, we can start to look like the world, mismanaging it for our own gain and our own secured future. With the question on the table, if you can't even handle the earthly stuff, how can you be trusted with the true riches? How can you be entrusted with the eternal treasure? With a good view of the end in mind, we'll manage what we have with that at the forefront. Having a lot or a little, it doesn't matter. We're all called to be good, shrewd managers trying to have our eye up with the end in view, finishing this short section with, you cannot serve God and money. And apparently this last line really got to the Pharisees because in verse 14 it says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So as a reminder, Jesus turned and talked to the disciples right after the parables we went through last week, like I said. But the Pharisees were still standing there. They were hearing every word of this. And the last line would have struck a chord with them. Because lots of Pharisees taught that the love of money and the love of God worked together. That the more you had meant the more that you were blessed. Earthly riches to the Pharisees, this is a quote, signified divine blessing. Rich people were therefore regarded as God's favorites without directly condemning them for this thought. He is lovingly correcting the false thinking that they had come to know. Having lots of money means nothing at the end of the day regarding your standing with God. If someone has more, that does not mean that they are more blessed as the Pharisees thought. And just because someone might have less does not mean that they are less loved. This idea the Pharisees had is still, as I'm sure you know, is still alive and well today through the prosperity gospel movement. This false gospel has tricked millions of people to this day that the more you have, the more God loves you. Believing the lie that the better you are, the more you'll have and the more blessed you will be. This bold-faced lie from the devil, Jesus is correcting here, helps continue to bring the end in view. It's not about justifying yourself before men, looking perfect and prestigious, loaded with cash. It's not about how the world views you at all, but how the creator of the universe views you. And without Jesus Christ, each and every person on planet Earth, no matter how rich in this life, no matter how prestigious, will fail and will spend eternity in pain and suffering without Jesus. Which we're actually going to see an example of here in the next parable. Because of Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his glorious resurrection from the dead, we are put back in a right relationship with the creator of all. It has nothing to do with how much you have, how little you have, or how the world views you. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one 
comes to the Father except through him. Disciples, Pharisees then, church now, Jesus in these first sections is hammering the points of being shrewd, being good stewards, not loving money, love God, with the big picture in mind of a right view of the end. And church, Jesus is the end game. Jesus is the one that rescues and restores if someone comes to faith in him. And without Jesus in the end, there is nothing but pain and a chasm. Let's look to Jesus, point people to Jesus and do it with a heated passion where we live, learn, work, and play so that the truth of the end can be known throughout the world. Sometimes, though, even when we know the truth of the end, we can get off course. Looking at the ground. Losing sight of that ridge. Sometimes even looking like the Pharisees getting caught up in how the world views us. Getting off track because we're more concerned about what others think than what God thinks. We're more concerned about our wealth than our eternal wealth. And this can be so easy to fall into. There have been so many times in my life that I got off course because I cared too much about what people thought. Finding my identity in what I had and how successful or even how unsuccessful I was. And you know, the beauty of this section as we talk about being shrewd stewards with a good view of the end in mind is that we will, we will go off course at times in our lives. And this section is not a self-help, just use these three points and these three easy steps and you'll be just fine. We're all still fallen sinners in need of a Savior. We were all lost. We, like sheep, at times go astray, and Jesus is the one who gets us back on track. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, we would never find our way back. But we, we, we can't do it on our own. As we walk through this life, we can know, with Jesus at the forefront, the end in view, that we will continue until the end by the help of by his help and his power. We can live with the right end in view because through Christ we have been given the right view of the end. Jesus continues, the law and the prophets were until John, since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So at first glance, this section might seem like a complete disconnect from the rest of the passage. From the rest of the passage. But as per usual, with the meticulous way that Luke puts this account together, it fits perfectly. So as Jesus just finished correcting the Pharisees' improper view, he points out that while they have been so distracted by all of the over-spirituality and their perfection, they thought justified them. 
only looking to the elite and looking to the rich. Something was happening right under their noses. Something was happening in their realm that they weren't even realizing. They had such tunnel vision, thinking Jesus was opposing them in the law, so busy worrying about themselves that they missed the reality of who Jesus is and what he came to do. While the Pharisees were busy opposing Christ, sinners entered his kingdom in droves. The literal translation of this, like pushing in, it's violent force, which is potentially a look at the passion of the lost, seeing the truth of their lostness, like the sheep, like the coin, and the sun banging down the doors. And in this, as the new covenant was introduced from the time of John forward, Jesus is ensuring the disciples and Pharisees understand that the original law put in place, the law that shows God's perfect character is not being abolished, but through Christ is being fulfilled. As this new covenant was being set in place, Gentiles and Jews alike came to understand the truth entering the kingdom. He didn't want anyone to think that the new aspects of God's work ignored or neglected the law. Immediately giving them an example of this with the idea of divorce and remarriage. Which takes us to our final parable and our final point. First we saw the end in view. Now we're going to see a view of the end. In the final parable, Jesus tells we see a chain of events take place that truly bring a view of the end. Hopefully recentering the end in view. In it, there's a rich man that had everything that he could ever want. This man's living a life of luxury and prestige. And then we see a second man presented in the account, and his name's Lazarus. He's a poor beggar that sat at this rich man's gate so hungry that he would be happy with scraps of food. Yet the rich man didn't care. He cared nothing for this man. He didn't care about what he needed and neglected him all the days of his life until both men died. In the next scene, we see Lazarus, the beggar, no longer begging but with Abraham. While the rich man is on the other side of the chasm, fixed between them, burning in anguish. The rich man in eternity is now the beggar. Give me water. Go tell my brothers the truth about eternity with the response from Abraham of you had your chance. And your brothers have their chance now if they would listen to what God has to say through the prophets. In this parable, Jesus hits the nail on the head with the points being made in this section of Scripture. The rich man, a man that only served himself and money, not God, builds up for himself a kingdom on this earth where he wanted for nothing, using his shrewd, his shrewd financial skills to have anything he could think of. And then there's a poor man in need, struggling, suffering, simply wanting scraps of food, and the rich man refused to help until the end of his days, like we said. This story, interestingly, is the culmination of both or of all the parables from last week and this week. As Jesus points to the Pharisees as the rich man, too good for the poor, not caring about anyone that didn't look like or sound like them. 
The Pharisee, too good for the tax collector and sinner, ignoring them, bypassing them, leaving them to rot. Because of how the rich man lived for himself and not for God and his people, the roles were reversed after his death when a true view of eternity is seen. Jesus, in his loving kindness, solemnly warned the Pharisees and reminded the disciples of the truth of this life. It's not about being perfect. It's not about how much money you have or the kingdom you are building, but about loving God and his people with the view of the end and the end in view. Using shrewd techniques, perceiving situations, and responding with epic, uh, effective strategies for the gospel to go out. Stewarding what you've been given with the most incredible truth, truth of the reason we do all of these things because of Jesus and what he did for us. Loving him by sharing him and loving his people by providing where we can. Church, as we leave here today, being reminded of the end in view and the view of the end, I pray that you would be encouraged to be shrewd managers, good stewards, reminding us of who, it, who it, it's all for. I pray that you would be encouraged that as we walk through this life, if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, the true end game, he will redirect your course by the power of the Holy Spirit. Praise God. We don't have to do it on our own. I pray that you would look up today as you're walking this path. Think through the places God has strategically placed you and how this should be leading you with the end in view today. Remembering the most important thing, that we can live with the right end in view. Because through Christ, we have been given the right view of the end. Let's pray. God, again, thank you for uh, this time in this passage. God, it's, it's a big chunk of scripture. But Lord, you are so good and you are so kind to uh, just help bring out the, the meat of this. Lord, I pray that each of us would leave here desiring to have the end in view. God, that we would desire to share your good news and that we would go hard after this world for you. I love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.